what can you just tell me what it is you like about this book? Um, I think it's uh, uh. well said. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello everyone, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf, the literature comedy podcast that is sweeping the nation uh god save the queen sitting across from me is daniel and i am abby and uh welcome to season two i mean what, what do you what do we have for housekeeping do we have any business we gotta discuss can i just say a brief word please you sure can't friend i'm gonna do it anyway on the matter of season versus series because in england we don't say season out of the spirit of you know, God save the Queen or not, I'm never going to say season in earnest. I'm only going to say it in implicit inverted commas, okay? So this is the second series for me and all my fellow countrymen. Anyway, moving on. So this is our first episode of 2022. Do you have any personal New Year's resolutions? Not really one for that. I don't really do that. And you? Well, my uh, resolution is to walk again. Because over the Christmas break, I broke my leg. I bring this up because this is going to be a, a slight recurrence throughout the episode, so you'll, you'll see what I mean by that in a minute. Okay, so we actually got two letters. This is from Glenn. <laughs> I've seen you appear a lot on podcast Twitter. That's my fault, sorry. And started listening to your show over the last month. It's not my normal thing. Sorry about that. But very amusing so far. Well, that's nice. I consider myself a bit of a podcast connoisseur. And there are so many out there where I can't stand to listen to the hosts talk to each other. But your personalities harmonize. I don't think we can stand to listen to each other talk, but yeah, that's, that's fine. That's, that's the secret, isn't it? I'm always curious. Here we go. I'm always curious about a few things whenever I finally discover a show with a partnership that works. One, how did you guys meet? Do you want to tell the story how we met? A uh, taxidermy workshop in Hull. Daniel was in the back and he just kept asking all these questions. He was trying to, um, he's working on some project preserving beaver testicles. Wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't tell us what it was about. And I thought, all right, I'm going to take this guy out for a coffee. I never actually found out what the project was, but... I mean, I think everyone can probably work it out. No, um, no. The, the real answer is we're work colleagues. This is number two. What made you friends? You're assuming we are. Three. Who thought up the name and the premise? Both the name and the premise came to us in a dream. Next, did you consider other co-hosts first? Uh, I did consider David Tennant, but you know he's a bit of a flake. Yeah. We've, we've Man, established... that guy is a drip <laughs> and a layabout. No, I, I didn't uh, consider anybody else. Daniel was my first port of call. Five, what is your biggest conflict about the show? Whether we should be sponsored by Pizza Hut or Domino's. Six, what do you think the other person brings to the show that you don't or couldn't? I think Daniel brings a real sense of glamour to this show. Yeah. Um, he has oh, yeah. a sort of pizzazz and elegance of a young Eleanor Roosevelt. 
I am trying to work out a formula for podcast co-hosting. Um, I suppose there isn't one really, is there? It's not sort of something you can, um, you know, just comes naturally to some, some of us. <laughs> not, a vi- not a big fiction reader, he continues, this is a little final note. Not a big fiction reader, but would you ever recap non-fiction? Yes, we're planning on doing uh, the dictionary and we're keeping a month of America. We're going to do that too, aren't we? I just read the diary of Anne Frank. That, that would be uh, an interesting... We, sorry Glenn, we are not recapping that. I would, I would certainly consider doing an autobiography or other nonfiction writing. That one, uh, look, we are ultimately trying to make jokes here in the recap and I just don't want to go to hell. Keep up the good work and thank you for reading. Okay. Glenn, that's nice. Thank you, Glenn. And our second letter, which I found to be so charming, is, uh, I'll just, I'll just read it. Hello. I don't know if you recall Sydney from your Dracula episode. Yes. We do indeed. She is our fan. She wrote twice. But this is the romantic interest writing to you. Hi. Needless to say, things worked out between the two of us, though she never did finish Great Expectations, nor did she set my garage on fire, which was what I said. If you're going to... Wow. Playing with the in-jokes. Yeah. I like it. I recommended, you know, really going balls to the wall for getting a a love interest's attention and recommended maybe a little light arson. And now we listen to your podcast together over dinner. How charming is that? They're they're lighting candles. You know, they could be listening to Pavarotti and instead they're listening to us. Have they only ever had 12 meals? They, well, 13 meals. Okay. yeah. Yeah, they've only ever had 13 meals. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I just figured I should update you. I love the podcast so far, and I'm excited to hear more. Sincerely, Clove, which is a cute fucking name. Your yeah. name is cute. Your letter is cute. Clove, you and Sydney, you are just darlings of the podcast, and we might accept you on as mascots if that's not demeaning. Official spice. This henceforth going to be the Clove. I thought that was so damn cute. That's very nice. Clove. Isn't it? Yeah. Her name is Clove. Clove. Okay. So, Daniel. What is our text today? Picture the scene, the British Isles, the 1720s. Pretty much the whole of modern society is being invented all around you. Parliamentary politics, finance, everybody's getting drunk and and bitching about each other in coffee shops. And uh, we know that because of its uh, satirical recapitulation through the eyes of one Jonathan Swift in Gulliver's Travels. Gulliver's Travels. Okay, I'm just going to have two little notes right here. The first note is that I hate this book. I've read it before, and I am reading it now again under protest. In fact, Daniel actually broke my leg, so I was immobilized and could not escape as he read it aloud to me. Like uh, misery. So um, I, I'm going to be real salty in this episode. I might swear quite a bit more than normal. You're only leaning into Swift's vision, though, Look, you, by being salty. I am in pain in more ways than one. Okay. I will be swearing some Good. more, and y'all just can deal with it. I also, the second note, um, I wrote this summary actually when I was in the hospital and had just had surgery and was very high on morphine. So there are a few moments that are particularly absurd and I will highlight those moments where my wording was clearly affected because I think they're funny. Okay, so it goes without saying, we're going to spoil this book for you. We're about to recap it. Trigger warnings. So just a lot of general peril. There's some racism. A lot of scatological stuff. I don't know if that's a trigger, but ye be warned. 
misogyny, blinding. There's possibly some implications of sexual abuse and maybe pedophilia, not really sure. Abandonment, animal attacks, piracy. And as I said, there's going to be a lot of discussion of opioid usage. You yeah. want to do some background? Sure. Jonathan Swift is the name of the author of the book. He was an Anglo-Irish cl clergyman, comma, satirist. Daniel, could you deliver this more slowly and with less enthusiasm? <laughs> okay. <laughs> he wrote other famous works, including A Modest Proposal, the uh, kind of economic treaties about how the Irish should sell their own children for meat. Yeah, and that's like eight pages long. I am glutted with Swift after that. Eight pages is all you need. He was a pretty weird guy. He had two overlapping relationships with women, both of whom were called Esther, <laughs> and one of whom he met while she was still a child. <laughs> he was uh, her tutor. <laughs> he also invented the name Vanessa. He insisted on calling his girlfriends by names that weren't their name, which is always the sign of a nice guy. Oh. And he published Gulliver's Travels to vex the world rather than divert it. I.e. it's not meant to entertain you, it's meant to irritate and disturb. I can see why you like it. You exist just to vex. And I exist to divert. Maybe that's the, the <laughs> yeah, balance. the formula. There's the formula. There you go, right. Here we go. I don't like this book, so let's haul ass our way through it, shall we? <laughs> We open with a letter from the eponymous Lemuel Gulliver, so there's a name that's died a happy death, and Gulliver is yelling at his cousin, just ready to beat his ass with a sock full of batteries, because apparently Gulliver, who's been on these travels, has given his sort of manuscript to his cousin, and the cousin has published it after making a bunch of serious and ludicrous changes and loads of mistakes. So, Gulliver gives us a little bit of background about his life. Uh, he's quite a sort of... Um... He's a kind of all-round, uh, kind of upper-middle-class English guy, you know, the kind of, the scum of the earth. Whereas you, who has a PhD... I am a certifiably lower-middle-class person, which is completely different. Uh, Gulliver worked as a ship's surgeon on a number of voyages. He had a patron called Mr. Bates. Um, Master Bates. Oh, in my Bates. version it says Mr. In my version, he is referred to as Master Bates. He has a patron known as Master Bates, and a cabin boy known as Roger. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> he also got married to someone called Mary Burton. And Mrs. Gulliver, Mary Burton, is sort of kicked to the back of this narrative a lot. She's, she's not given a lot of airtime. I love her for reasons that will be made clear. Well, that's something to look forward to. After getting married, he was kind of forced by financial pressures to return to sea. The voyage started well, but went south in all senses. Ooh. That's a prefab. Um, <laughs> oh, Daniel, you're so droll. Thank you. We do have fun together, don't we? <laughs> the ship hit a rock somewhere near Australia. They didn't call it that back then, they didn't even know about it, but that's where <laughs> it was. And only Gulliver and a handful of his companions got away in a lifeboat. That's sad. Um, yeah, it's actually... Oh, that he survived. Oh, right. oh yeah. <laughs> the lifeboat was soon capsized, and Gulliver, separated from his companions, swam off, eventually finding land, where he collapsed from exhaustion, and also from drinking half a pint of brandy for, before jumping overboard, which I think we'd all do, wouldn't we? I mean, drunk exercising would lead to a great nap after. But cardio. <laughs> it's a pun. <laughs> Thank you for bottom-lining that for me. Okay, so he's washed up on shore after this shipwreck, and this is the most famous bit of the novel. It's set in a land called Lilliput, and thank God spellcheck hadn't been invented in 1726 because this book would cause it to melt down like Chernobyl. 
I actually need to remember to put in a sound effect whenever we get a dumbass name, which is going to be very frequently. Quite funny. <laughs> so when Gulliver wakes up the next morning, he is fastened to the ground like Lillian Gish tied to the train tracks. There is a reference nobody has made in yeah. 87 years. Is that, That's that a woman in the silent film? Yes. And he's strapped down so tightly that he can't really look around to see what's going on at all. But he does start to feel something small walking on his body. And I just have full body chills at this because my thought would be fucking tarantula. Well, that's way scarier than what actually happens. Yeah, I know. Which is kind of whimsical and vaguely amusing. Well, because then he hears a little voice speaking a language he doesn't know, and Gulliver is able to tear some of his fastenings away so he can move a little bit, and he sees a bunch of tiny people, and when they see him sort of ripping his fastenings down, they shoot him in the hand with hundreds of tiny arrows. So this is like a darkest timeline land of Oz. So they get him pissing drunk so he passes out again, and they immobilize him and they carry him to the palace to meet the emperor. There is a bit where Culliver says that he considered killing them all. Um, would you do that? Would you kill them all if you were Gulliver? Uh, no, I'd, I'd keep that one in the chamber, because presumably I could do it later. I'd want to see what's going on. I didn't mean in general, wait. If you... Let's assume that you're leaving Lilliput. Is everybody there dead? Depends on my mood that day. I think I definitely would. I think once you're a giant, all bets are off. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but you and I have had this discussion <laughs> at least five times. If you were a giant, if would you, you, kill, a giant, everyone? Would you yeah. kill everyone? No, definitely I would. I would just destroy everything. This just is... completely out of like pure like wanton spite. Did you ever play The Sims? What did you do to your Sims? They had a hard time. <laughs> okay, so he arrives in the city and they sort of shackle him in this kind of huge deconsecrated temple. And he becomes a bit of a tourist attraction. I wish P.T. Barnum would show up and torture this guy instead of all those elephants. I don't know if you what, guys- What, elephants torture him? Oh, he tortured loads of elephants, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you guys know this. Uh, do not believe the greatest showman. P.T. Barnum was an absolute bastard, and he tortured animals and people alike. Look it up. So he's, uh, you know, he kind of wakes up from his, uh, you know, in this kind of huge cathedral thing, and he's kind of like, oh, I'm in jail, but also this is quite exciting because everything's tiny. Oh, how, how darling! It's like a little garden or something like that. He says, so, you know, all the trees and the animals are all equally tiny. However, also he is extremely pressed by the necessities of nature, and so. <laughs> what does that mean? What is what is Swift saying there? What does it mean to that quotation? That, well, that's the great thing, isn't it, about Gulliver that he, shit is just. You know, universal in this text, but Gulliver is so, such a sort of fusty old English guy. He always speaks about it in veiled terms. Is it, is it pooping? I thought he just had to pee. Nah, because he, dis he, quote, disburdens himself in the corner of the temple, and then uh, the shite is kind of carted off in wheelbarrows by the Lilliputians. Oh, okay. So, yeah. All right. So I think this is foreshadowing, because you and I are going to be carting around Gulliver's shit for the rest of this episode. <laughs> Next, Gulliver meets the Emperor. The Emperor is very tiny, as all Emperors are. Uh, he's also very attractive. 28 years old, he's a bit past his prime though, isn't he? Well, life was harder back in 1726. Gulliver is known as the Man Mountain, and he becomes a political issue. The Emperor and the Ministers, they all kind of debate what to do with him. Gulliver says, They apprehended my breaking loose, that my diet would be very expensive, and might cause a famine. So they consider killing him, but then they worry that his carcass might produce a plague in the metropolis. Yeah, so we get lots of political stuff here. This book is what would happen if Aaron Sorkin wrote an adaptation of King Kong. <laughs> yes, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's very funny. Gulliver shows that he's kind of all around nice guy, magnanimous to the Lilliputians, so they're like, let's look after him. Then they all have, you know, 
have fun looking at the stuff in his pockets. So he's got like big watches and hankies and things. Always hilarious. And well, the, okay, right. There's this bit as well where Gulliver says that the Lilliputians actually missed one of his pockets, and inside the secret pocket, he has some spectacles and other small items. So we've loaded Chekhov's spectacles, right? And this is definitely going to be a big plot point later on. Just like a very clear, they've missed something. I'm not telling them it's a secret. So Gulliver gets along well in Lilliput and he hopes that he can soon lure them into enough of a sense of security where they'll let him, you know, off his chains. That's that's funny. Does that remind you of anything from season trying, one? Yeah. Didn't we read a book where a giant girl was being uh, sort of uh, pestered yeah. by a tiny aristocrat. And if you go back and listen to our Pamela episode, Daniel and I get a little hot under the collar about whether it's better to constantly fight or to lure people into a false sense of security so they relax their guard around you. This what is again a bit like whether you were a giant as well. The same, it's the same in terms of the argument, isn't it? If you're a giant, do you kill everybody or not? If you're in prison, do you kill everybody or not? Uh, clearly Eileen and they kill everybody. So Gulliver learns the language and he lets children play hide and seek in his hair. And here is a line that I wrote when I was on morphine. They are the lice of whimsy. You nasty. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, so the Emperor is into a lot of weird pageantry, including making Gulliver stand like the Colossus at Rhodes and having the army march between Gulliver's legs, but threatening pain of death to anyone who looks up at Gulliver's massive dick. Some guys do look at it, but I don't think they get killed or anything. And I can't even tell if this is a queer reading or not, but I hate it. This is just an excuse for Gulliver to talk about how many men looked upon his dick with admiration, which is just, this is some sort of like psychological fantasy <laughs> where you can like Mary Sue your way into this, Gary Sue your way in, <laughs> and sort of go, golly, I wish I were Gulliver and men looked on my dick and despaired. I think that would never happen in my situation because I would have killed everyone already. But, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think aren't we meant to just think that Gulliver is a tosser? That he's kind of like, <laughs> coiling <laughs> some, some opportunities for admiration? <laughs> That's the point, isn't it? That Gulliver is a tosser. Yeah, I know, I know. I just, I, I think there is a little bit of... Oh. That's what's so great about the book, isn't it? That Gulliver is a toss, but also there is something weird and there like, is... Fantas like fantasy about it. Look, I get plenty of emails about this, but I assure you my penis needs no enlargement. So <laughs> I, I just, I'm not connecting with it. The only person who doesn't like Gulliver is a guy named Skyrash Bolgalam. There's a spell check for you. I didn't know, I don't want to get too much into this, but is this a British in India reading? Because this sounds like oh, an Englishman who's never actually met somebody from India trying to come up with a kind of Indian-sounding name. I mean, there's generally a sort of Orientalist vibe, yeah. isn't there? And they do talk about the Lilliputians dressing like Asiatic, half yeah. Asiatic, half European, so I don't know. Maybe. Skyrash was, quote, pleased without any provocation to be my mortal enemy. Really, Gulliver? No provocation? Maybe it's just because your penis is so big and he's jealous. So Skyrash lobbies for Gulliver to remain in chains. But instead, we get a very long and very boring piece of legislature setting him free. Why do we need to see this? I don't know. But the new rules are Gulliver is freed from his chains. But if they ever go to war, especially with their enemies, the Blefusku, Gulliver has to help them fight any and all wars. So, okay, we're not that far into the recap. But I think, in my professional academic opinion, this book sucks ass. 
Over to you. How big is the ass? <laughs> a courtier says to Gava that Lilliput is under threat from its neighbouring island, Blefuscu. They're at war over which end of a boiled egg one should crack it, the big end or the little end. Everybody used to break the egg at the larger end. But then a few generations back, a Lilliputian prince cut himself while doing so. So it was decreed that Lilliputians henceforth should break the smaller end of the egg. Satire, it's about the Reformation. The big end ends of the Catholics, the little end ends of the Protestants. It's hilarious. They're all the same, really. Don't worry about <laughs> it. You know. So yeah, this caused a lot of sort of religious wars and rebellions. And you know, sadly, the Blefuscadian and Lilliputian holy book only advises that all true believers shall break their eggs at the convenient and I <laughs> see this. How can you not like this? This I, is hilarious. I, this is this is one of the only funny points of the book. I did sort of. I was. A, it was a little droll. Okay, you know the and boiled eggs. Even even a stopped clock. <laughs> I did actually think. You know, when I got to this bit, no wonder you like this book so much. I mean, there's just this book has no sex in it. It's got loads of food, specifically eggs. It's got toilet humor. It's got some big fantasy stuff. Meanwhile, I'm over here having a miserable time. It's got sex in it. Looking frantically for the eject from podcast button, which I know I installed on this chair. <laughs> so when the war starts, Gulliver springs on the Blefuscu like a dime store stay puffed marshmallow man, and he helps win a big battle for Lilliput, and he basically ends the war single-handedly. One night, the royal palace catches fire, and the locals can't put it out in time. So Gulliver wakes up and you're already laughing. You're already laughing. <laughs> He's been drinking really heavily, hasn't he? He's already been drinking loads. <laughs> so he, uh, he gets up and he pees on the fire and puts it out and saves everyone. And he thinks that he's done everyone a solid, but this is apparently an enormous insult. Um, <laughs> I voided in such a quantity and applied so well the proper places that in three minutes the fire was wholly extinguished. It's just like such a... I did such a good job. <laughs> <laughs> you were having the time of your life over there talking about gross boy things like pissing and shitting and... He saved lives. Eggs and sailors. Did you wish on a shooting star? <laughs> so we get a bit of a sort of hiatus after Pissgate <laughs> for Gulliver to list some more details about Lilliput. This is just a sort of general... You know, survey of their culture. Sociological yeah. little bit. They've got a kind of weird legal system. If you're accused of a crime by someone and you're found innocent, the accuser is put to death. So that'll, that'll make you think twice. They punish fraud over theft because you can kind of like do more damage. Ingratitude is a capital crime because if you're ungrateful to a benefactor, then you must be a common enemy to the rest of mankind from whom you've received nothing. So that's quite... I don't know... What what Swift is doing here is it like is he making fun of the law or is he saying that these are good ideas? It's kind of hard to tell, isn't it? But I quite like that about it. Um, I feel like I am Jane Goodall right now. If Jane Goodall wanted to murder the thing she was studying, <laughs> so because we're doing all the world building now, which Gulliver should have known before he peed, the reader is only just now clued in that peeing on the royal palace is this grave insult, even to save it from burning down. So Skyrash. Bolgolum works his magic to get Gulliver convicted of treason and to be sentenced to blinding, which frankly I think is letting him off too lightly. That's what that's what they say. Though. I am I am full team Skyrash here. That's a funny that's such a funny bit though when they're like, let's kill the guy. Kill the fool, kill the fool, and they're like, no, can't we just blind him, you know? And Gulliver's like Looking back, they were actually very lenient on just blinding me. I should have stayed and allowed them to <laughs> that's such a funny bit. Yeah, just I mean commit war crimes on this dude. I don't fing care. 
Gulliver manages through a little political maneuvering to escape Lilliput before they blind him, and he manages to swim to Blefuscu, the enemy nation. As Gulliver is heading to Blefuscu, he spots a Blefuscuan warship that he sort of destroyed in the recent war, and with some help from their government, Gulliver is able to right the ship, they stock it, and he sails it like a little canoe, until he luckily inexplicably runs into an English trading ship, which he boards, and then he goes back to England. So he's bringing a real, like, Forrest Gump jammy bugger energy to global exploration. He's also reunited with his family, and he stays with them for only two months before he starts getting the urge to travel again. Okay, dummy. All of my sympathies are with Mrs. Gulliver, and I was so furious on her behalf when I read this that I started to feel like I had drunk too many cups of coffee. I could just feel myself vibrating like with rage into the sun. Maybe a swift circle. Because they liked coffee, uh -huh. didn't they, back then? Yeah. Popular drink. What? <laughs> What's the point of him having those secret eyeglasses? They do mention that he does mention the glasses. When he was attacking the Blefuscadian fleet, he puts the glasses on and they deflect their arrows. But why make the big song and he could just say that they got to keep why make a whole like it's a secret i'm sorry no they set us up and the plot doesn't thicken which is great that's just i mean no that's just a classic trope da of 18th century literature daniel this is the dullest godzilla movie i have ever seen i like that about it though it's imagine that if like um some like boring bank manager was Godzilla. That's what this is like. That's why it's so funny. Why are you trying to sell that as a feature instead of a bug? <laughs> right, we're on part two. I'm mm -hmm. gesturing a two. Gulliver enlists on a ship with a Cornish captain. It's headed for Surat. No, no comment on Cornwall? Yeah, no, it's fine, isn't it? Yeah. Just, well, normally you're, I, I'm starting to think you're getting kickbacks from the Cornwall Tourism Board. I was just wondering if I had a chance to get in on that action, but apparently you're not working today. Sorry. There are more Cornish captains to come, listeners, okay. so we can... I'll do it then. I'll think of something I mean, to say that's nice about Cornwall. I, I, I've been once. Cornwall. How could roads so narrow hold all my dreams? Cornwall. They do have narrow roads, yes. Yeah. They get blown off course! Eventually they spot land and head for it. Gulliver and a few others, they all kind of go on, explore the land, and then he's looking back and he sees all of his comrades being pursued by one of the country's inhabitants, a huge creature. They run back to their boat and head off, kind of abandoning Gulliver. He's like, well, I might as well go for a wander in a field, as you do in that sort of situation. Uh, but notice that everything's kind of undergone island gigantism. The grass is 20 feet high. The corn, 40 feet. So that's pretty high corn, to say the least. You know the expression, I'm in high cotton? This would really be taking the piss. No, I don't know that expression. Okay, moving on. <laughs> it's so, like, honey, I shrunk the kids. Exactly, yes, it is just like that. But not as good. The whole experience puts the whole Lilliputian episode into perspective. Gulliver's like, ooh, now the roles have been reversed. Undoubtedly, philosophers are in the right when they tell us that nothing is great or little otherwise than by comparison. So. Lilliputians might be giants to some people, just as these giants might be tiny to other people. Relative. And this place, you know, the the opposite of Lilliput is called Brobdingnag. So Gulliver, you know, he's tiny in this land of giants. He sees the seriousness of his situation, so he's stuck tiny and lost and wandering in this really dangerous world. And thinking he's going to die here, he quote 
bemoaned my desolate widow and fatherless children. Fuck this guy, right? Okay, and here is a rant that I wrote while on morphine. So, on me. First of all, sir, your children are already fatherless, you absent twat. Secondly, you don't give a single shit about your wife. Thirdly, it's rich that you assume she would be desolate. I hope she is having sex with everything in a five mile radius. I hope she's picked up a great hobby and has 18 best friends and never thinks about you or knows a moment of sadness in her life. Fuck you, Gulliver. You poor man's Dr. Livingstone. You off-brand Crusoe. You D-list Magellan. Bottom of the morning to you. Yeah, wow, that really did have a sort of haze to it. The main thing I want to know is, you know like how Americans say taco, uh, <laughs> taco? Mm-hmm. Is twat just Sorry. Is that just twat? Yes, uh, twat is a word I never really said in the States, but that is how I would say it in my normal accent. And as I said it here, I realize that's not how I normally say it now. Isn't that funny? I woke up in a land where people said twat instead of twat. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, I know what you mean about the whole absentee father thing. Equally, it is his job, so it's not really his fault. Um, so anyway, yeah, all, uh, uh, all of this is cut hey, short. Hey, all of this is cut short. Hey. <laughs> when a giant peasant finds him and picks him up. You're telling me, no, it's not, no, sir. You're telling me he couldn't get a job as a surgeon anywhere in all of London? That's how it started, wasn't it, that his practice failed? So... A farmer hears Gulliver screaming, picks him up, puts him in his little pocket, carries him home. There is a slightly funny bit here, I will admit, because the farmer takes Gulliver out and shows him to his wife, his giant wife, and she takes one look at Gulliver and starts screaming like he's some sort of repulsive bug, which I feel is kind of relatable. I probably would do the same. Gulliver then watches the mother breastfeed her baby, and he says, quote, I must confess no object ever disgusted me so much as the sight of her monstrous breast, which I cannot tell what to compare with, so as to give the curious reader an the idea. The other one? <laughs> <laughs> and I do. <laughs> okay, that was funny. Please stop raising the bar for this podcast. Okay. The nipple, oh, I hate that word. Maybe I'll just, ugh. Nipple. I hate that. Okay. The nipple was about half the bigness of my head, and the hue, both of that and the dug, by which he means her, the rest of her boob, so varied with spots, pimples, and freckles that nothing could appear more nauseous. This made me reflect on the fair skins of our English ladies, who appear so beautiful to us only because they are of our size, and their defects not to be seen but through a magnifying glass, where we find by experiment that the smoothest and whitest skins look rough and coarse and ill-colored. Bitches, <laughs> they're evil and and dirty. That's what's going on here, right? I mean, I was gonna say he has a weird aversion to women over the course of yeah. this, and I'm not sure if there's a queer reading. Uh, maybe. Here. Yeah. I, well, there's definitely a misogyny reading. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If that's a thing. Well, yeah. Well, obviously can, is. can we please remember that when his giant dong yes. was exposed, everyone was in court. Aha, <laughs> Mr. Gulliver, <laughs> you thought everybody was very impressed by your junk. <laughs> we discuss your eyesight? Go ahead. Daniel has X-Men level good eyesight. Yeah, really good. It's terrifying. So is that how you see the world? Well, I suppose, unlike Gulliver, I would never know any different, would I? So I it's all, the philosophers are right. It's all relative. Oh, making the joke.
Rickoff motion. So Gulliver sleeps at the family's house and he's left alone the next morning and is attacked by a couple of rats, which he then kills with his own little knife. And I was like, okay, we're getting into some proper adventure fiction here. This was, that was genuinely thrilling. And then Gulliver gets the lady of the house to take him outside where he poops in her garden. And he says he does. <laughs> Keep going. He says he doesn't omit this vulgar interlude from the narrative because the whole experience, pooping in a garden, is so deeply imprinted on his mind that he wants to convey it fully here. But then he says he actually did edit out a bunch of boring stuff, and I just think that's a real psychological profile of a diseased mind. <laughs> I would rather you know specifically that I shit in someone's front garden than be considered boring, is what he tells us. And I'm all on board with that. Uh... Dana, why did you make me read this? Oh my god, you hateful bitch. <laughs> Gulliver is adopted by the farmer's nine-year-old daughter. She teaches him the language of Brobdingnag. She calls him Grildrig. Uh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, uh, another of those words, which means mannequin. And he calls her Glondalclitch. Off. Also, you know, little nurse. We've already got a sort of infantilization fantasy of him being nursed by this little girl, but also the kind of back to Swift's weird activities with uh, there, Esther. Well, there was a real sexual undercurrent here, because I, th I think she undresses him a lot, yeah, and there, yeah, there was just yeah. like, there was there was something in this that made me very uneasy. Oh yeah, it's weird, yeah. Soon word gets out in the neighborhood about the farmer's discovery, and Gulliver is exposed for money as a public spectacle. Again, I want P.T. Barnum to show up. Maybe if we look in the mirror and say exploitation five times, he'll materialize. <laughs> He's carried around the region in a little box, and he kind of just turns up at like pubs and students' unions and things, doesn't he, in those little performances. But he's also worked hard, half to death, and then eventually they get to the capital city of Brobdingnag, where an emissary from the royal court comes to try and acquire him as like a sort of curio. A farmer who's like, well, he's going to die soon, might as well cut my losses and sell him at a healthy profit, decides to um, sell Gulliver to the, uh, the queen. Gulliver's like, only on the conditions that Glumdale Klitsch comes to. So. Gulliver becomes a sort of pet slash court sycophant, you know, what's the difference? <laughs> Sorry. That's how you're supposed to engage with this, right? Yeah. So as soon as Gulliver is out of the farmer's possession, he endears himself to the queen by basically saying, F that guy and the horse he rode in on. And the queen is like, this guy is dope. Absolute legend. <laughs> and Gulliver is keen to tell us that after this, he soon becomes a favorite with everyone. <laughs> of course you are, Gulliver. Everyone just loves the you. The world's darling. Except the queen's dwarf, who is like, who is this Polly Pocket son of a bitch? So Gulliver also constantly has to fight the whole world around him just by virtue that he's so small. So if it's not the dwarf playing mean tricks on him and trying to kill him, then he's fighting off flies or wasps or hail, or in one case he's actually carried up to the roof by a monkey. <laughs> Gulliver also tries to evil Knievel his way over a pile of cow shit and falls in it. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, just another little adventure. So this is, this is not actually the land where everything is big. This is just the land where human dignity is scarce. And we get all these long diatribes about what the country is like, and court manners, and I never thought I would miss hearing about somebody pooping in somebody's begonias, but here we are. God, this book is making us both stupid, I think. <laughs> the royal court goes on a progress around the kingdom, and Gulliver sees it all from the window of a little box uh, that has been, like, kind of tailor-made for him. 
so we get a few more accidents. A spaniel picks him up. Uh, a thrush steals a bit of cake off him, which is <laughs> funny. The incidents start to get a bit weirder, don't they? The maids of honour in the court, they start messing with Gulliver in their boudoir. They strip him naked from toe to toe and lay him at full length in their bosoms. Gulliver says they smell, so again, a bit more misogyny there. That's nice. The maids strip off and produce copious quantities of piss in front of him. They don't even care about him soon. You know, that's a funny bit. And then finally, we get this another weird sex bit. A pleasant, frolicsome girl of 16 would sometimes set me astride upon one of her nipples with many other tricks, wherein the reader will excuse me for not being over-particular. But I was so much displeased that I entreated Glumdale Clitch to contrive some excuse for not seeing that young lady anymore. What's she been doing with Gulliver? I, I mean, where's I think, she, where's she been putting him? I think we can all imagine. <laughs> it, but I mean, how would you even excuse that if somebody walked in and there's a little man sitting on one of your nips? It's um, not what it looks like. <laughs> Just flick him off, I suppose. While they're out one day and Gulliver is being carried around in his special little box, the box is left unattended and a giant eagle picks it up and carries it off. And eventually the eagle drops his box into the sea and just as Gulliver is convinced he's going to drown, he's picked up again implausibly by a passing English ship and carried back to England. So he gets home and he, uh, he tells his family they're all too small. Yeah. Also, his poor... Wife, can you just imagine her going, oh, you're back? <laughs> Gulliver tells us that his wife makes him swear he'll never go to sea anymore, which is clearly her doing reverse psychology yeah, on yeah, him. Very good. No, I forbid it. It's so forbidden, the sea, the dangerous, sexy sea. I love Mrs. Gulliver. She is my everything. We've had the little people. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then we had big people. That, Remember that, that too. That also happened. What's the next logical step from that? Um, just loads of mad stuff. So, uh, <laughs> this book... Yeah, the title of this is called, brace yourself, A Voyage to Laputa, Balnebarbi, Lugnag, Glubdubdrub, and Japan. Japan. So, Gulliver is convinced to go on another voyage by a different Cornishman. <laughs> oh, Gulliver, that is just classic yeah, you. <laughs> this time they go to the East Indies. They set sail in 1706 and reach Vietnam the next year, uh, where they get a second ship. Gulliver is made captain of this ship, uh, which is very quickly waylaid by pirates. Why? Wait, wait, wait. Why is he getting a promotion? Every trip he has been on has been a disaster. So he's gone from what? He's gone from ship surgeon to brigadier shithead. To captain? I suppose he's Come on! He's a gentleman, isn't he? That doesn't mean he's good at doing ship stuff. Well, clearly not, as the next bit will demonstrate. They get waylaid by pirates. The pirates are Japanese, but they also have a Dutchman in the crew. Gulliver's like, to the Dutch guy, Come on, you're a fellow Christian slash Protestant. Well, be nice to us, and the Dutchman is not having any of it. The pirate captain is a bit more magnanimous. He says, like, oh, don't worry about it. You won't die. Your crew won't die. And Gulliver's like, to the Dutch guy, it's funny that I found more mercy in a heathen than in a brother Christian. The I have a morphine note here where I just wrote, that's right, poke the sleeping bear numbnuts. <laughs> yes, uh, and that's what happens. The Dutch guy kicks off. He's like, shave, shave the rest of the crew. <laughs> I don't mind them. They're all, they're all right. You, Gulliver, you are in trouble. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, gold numbers here, everybody. <laughs> Hello. You're going to be put in a canoe and thrust off into the sea. Uh, so the... They all like they do that. They put Gulliver in a canoe and kick him off the boat, and the Dutchman's just kind of shouting abuse at him with all the curses and injurious terms his language could afford. Uh, I know a Dutch swear word. It's Nergen in de Kurgen, which means in the kitchen. Kitchen. So maybe he said that to him. Who knows? I bet something sensational and improbable will come and save him. I bet it'll all be okay. No doubt. Also, can I just make this point? The things that start each of his voyages are getting worse, aren't they? First mm -hmm. it was just a natural disaster, then he got abandoned, now he's getting attacked by pirates. Like, things are getting nastier every time, so it's got a sort of pessimistic narrative uh, arc. And there's a, there's a relentlessness there as well, because he doesn't stop either, mm. right? So he, he doesn't learn his lesson. He is sort of driven unstoppably by this relentless dissatisfaction. This book should have been called Sad Max. <laughs> Gulliver goes island hopping. Yeah, he's having a pretty nice time, it seems, actually, doesn't it? Goes, we have a little bit of a kind of Robinson Crusoe bit. He's living on birds' eggs. More like eggs! That. I'm yes. so happy Thank for you. you. You know, if Swift were a good writer, he would tell us if he ate those eggs, opening them on the big end or little end side. That would be a good callback, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So, he kind of just hunkers down in this little cave. Then, one hot day, a vast opaque body blocks out the sun. And Gulliver's like, ooh, I'm cold now. And, uh, and it's dark. As it approached nearer, it appeared to be a firm substance, the bottom flat, smooth, and shining very bright from the reflection of the sea below. So he gets out his little telescope, because people had them back then, didn't they? And he sees that it's a, an island, a hovering island that's populated, and it has little kind of staircases and galleries on the side, and there's people on there. And uh, he kind of flags it down. He flags down the flying island, doesn't he? <laughs> they, they pick him up. You, re you referenced Robinson Crusoe. I never thought I would rather be reading a book that has a 30-page stretch where they just talk about goat husbandry. But I would That's kill, actually more whimsical, isn't it, really? Kill to be talking about Robinson Crusoe yeah. right now. This floating island is Laputa. La Laputa? I say Laputa. Laputa. So, of course, we now get a long diatribe and sociological survey about what these people are like. And they're all incredibly deep thinkers, so deep that their servants need to carry around bladders on sticks to gently smack their masters whenever the masters are thinking so hard that they might be ignoring their surroundings and, you know, then get themselves into danger. Well, anyway, these people are obsessed with the arts and sciences, and it's a little academic satire, if you will, and I won't. The only problem is that they're actually really bad at applying anything they learn, so they're really obsessed with taking measurements, but they can't get the measurements to work out in real life. And the, the one morphine comment I have here is just praxis. <laughs> and uh, th these people only are able to sort of subsist and, and take care of themselves via tribute sent up to them by the inhabitants of the continent below that they sort of float over. And it's a continent called Balnabarbi. So Gulliver isn't particularly happy here because he's considered the stupidest person around and because everyone else is so distracted, he's not made a fuss over, which I find to be a very telling section of this book for me in terms of Gulliver's personality. Yeah. So when he requests to leave, they're just like, okay, bye. And they drop him off in that vassal state, Balnabarbi. And this is a, kind of a similar area in which research and all of its accompanying bureaucracy grind everything to a halt. This is why you don't like it. Now I'm seeing, because it makes fun of academics. No, this was my favorite bit of the book, actually. Okay, I take that all back. Good. We get one of the other famous bits. 
At the bit where he gets tied down, this is the sort of second most famous bit, isn't it? Gulliver goes to uh, visit the Academy of Lagado. Lagado is the capital city of Balnabarbi. And we just get a sort of like series of funny vignettes of him on his campus tour. <laughs> uh, the different academics are called projectors. So like, you know, people that kind of research things. So he starts with STEM. <laughs> you love it, I love it, we all love STEM. Are there we? women in STEM? Yeah, that's a very important issue that shouldn't be mocked about women being in STEM. There are more women who work as bloggers encouraging women to get into STEM than there are women in STEM. Uh, the first of these projectors is a ragged old man who's trying to uh, extract sunbeams from cucumbers and then he will, the plan is to store the sunbeams to warm raw inclement summers. Ha ha ha, that's funny. The next projector's lab has a horrible stink and <laughs> the projector himself is daubed over with filth. This is because his research consists of attempting to reduce human excrement to its original food by separating the several parts, removing the tincture which it receives from the gall, making the odour exhale, and scumming off the saliva. He's retconning poop? Yes. Next, there's a guy who's trying to turn cobwebs into a new textile better than silk. Now all the guy needs to do is work out how to make the webs stronger. Ha ha ha, he's wasting his time. Uh, I'm just telling you why it's funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like all good jokes. Yeah, yeah yes, exactly. Yeah. Lots of explaining. Next, we've got a physician who has developed a new treatment which involves inserting bellows into a patient's asshole and then either deflating or inflating their gut. He demonstrates his treatment on a dog which promptly farts itself to death. Ha ha ha, farting, death. They're both funny. <laughs> uh, next, right, that's science. That's, that's, that's all that covered. Next we've got humanities and social sciences. Next, we have a scholar that's trying to develop a language that consists entirely of monosyllabic nouns. Next, we've got one that wants to abolish language altogether, because speaking is corrosive to the lungs. Instead, you just need to carry around everything that you might want to refer to, and then just like show it to people, so that they know what you're, uh, you know, on about. That's funny too. I, 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 people at home are laughing. They're trying to eat their tea, but they can't. They're laughing. Tea is English for dinner. Uh, <laughs> Gulliver doesn't like certain political scientists because they want to reward merit and, you know, public good. But he does like a doctor that wants to subject politicians to constant medical attention to ensure better legislation. And he's like, if politicians have a serious disagreement, we'll cut out a bit of each of their brain and swap it <laughs> between <laughs> their skulls so that they can just argue amicably within a single skull. Next we've got a guy that says that politicians need to inspect the diet and excrement of every suspected plotter, assassin or rebel because men are never so serious, thoughtful and intent as when they're at stool. Are we assuming that a lot of this was written at stool? Or oh. not because it's not serious or thoughtful? Did he write this on the can? Yeah, I think so. Uh, look, I know it's supposed to be a satire of academia, but... Lots of these are really good ideas. <laughs> well, some of them are actually... I mean, aren't people trying to figure out how to turn spider webs into a different... I think that's part of the appeal, that some of them have gone on to have a resonance. In yeah. the same way that like the people of Laputa discovered that Mars had two moons. moons. And Mars really does have two moons, and, but they didn't yeah. know that back then. So I think that's the kind of... That's why it vexes the world rather than diverts it, because some of the things might actually be useful. But this is like also some, you know, fun 3M shit. This is how stuff actually gets invented. You let people play and fail miserably, and okay, what are the applications? Yeah, I know, I think, that's, yeah, that's, I think there is an ambiguity. Uh, that's like, he's I trying like to it. satirize academia, and I'm like, no, this is well, actually the idea. Again, though, is he? Because he's, he's also showing off his kind of his own inventiveness, isn't he? So I think it's, it's an inventive exercise in criticizing invention. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. 
So eventually... You can read a book more than one way. Um, I don't think if you know that... I've never heard that. there's just two layers, surface and uh, penises. <laughs> uh, those are the only two layers you need. Okay, that's alright then. I don't, I don't like subtext, it's for cowards. Eventually Gulliver leaves here and goes to Glub-Dub-Drub. Daniel, I am on a razor's glub -dub -drib, edge. Glub-Dub-Drib, please. It's drub. Mine says... Glub-Dub-Drub was in my version. I've got Drib. Ooh. Oh, that's weird. I have Glub-Dub-Drub in mine. It's very strange. Wild times. And he's, he's trying to make his way back to Europe. Why? Don't go home. You're just gonna leave again. Stop turning this third act into Homeward Bound, but one where the cat and dogs get there and they're like, eh. <laughs> Glub Dub Drub is the island of sorcerers. And Gulliver gets there and immediately gets to see the governor because what is the tourism industry of these places? One person shows up and they're instantly taken to whatever leader. Now, here's a morphine comment. And what I was trying to say is, this is a weird way for the governor to try to bond with a new person and get to know each other. What I wrote, however, is the governor is like, you know what's a good howdy-do? <laughs> Necromancy. Let's summon some fucking ghosts. That, that, that turn of phrase has never been uttered by man before. Yeah, that's true, yeah. So... I feel like I'm on a weird voyage. You've definitely been on some kind of trip. And I, now I'm on my own. Well, if you know, if anyone out there wants to turn, you know what's a good howdy do, <laughs> into a tote bag or a pin. You are definitely like the unreliable narrator of this piece. You're like the Gulliver's Gulliver. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Anyway, Gulliver and the governor of this Isle of Sorcerers summon a bunch of spirits. They summon, of course, a bunch of great white men from history. Love those guys. Who all have a pissing contest with each other. And Gulliver concludes that ancient history is great and modern history is just garbage. God damn it, I hate him so much. Daniel, if you were able to summon the ghost of anyone, regardless of language, barrier, like, who would you summon? I can only do one. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I mean, unless they come as a package deal like uh, Lewis and Clark. No, no, no. No, I don't like that. No, you get Lewis or Clark. Okay. I wouldn't get rid of them anyway. You go first. I would summon the ghost of that white pigeon that Nikola Tesla was in love with because I want to find out if the feelings were mutual. Right. Uh, I don't even understand that. Nikola Tesla. I know who Nikola Tesla is, yeah. Loved he, a pigeon. He w was in love with a pigeon. He said that he. Uh, this is almost a verbatim quote, um, which I'm pulling off the top of my head, but he loved this white pigeon that he would feed in the park every day as much as any man has ever loved any woman. Wow. That's quite touching. It is, but I, I just want to know if it was reciprocated or if she was just there for the crumbs. <laughs> Could you raise yourself from the dead? Like your future dead self? Ooh, you're twisted. That's fucked up. I like this. Because then I'd be like, how did I die? And I'd be like, this way. And I'd be like, great, I'll avoid that. Take me down that path, Daniel. And then the ghost will disappear like Marty McFly's relatives. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So Gulliver bounces, and he heads over to Lugnag. Come up with better names, you weenie. The big thing about Lugnag is it's Strolled Brugs. Fuck off. My, see, 
my problem with this is that a lot of the names in Lilliput, Brobdingnag, and on these islands sound quite simple. They have a similar phonology. If that's you're going to come up with funny words, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be, you know, I know that's quite nerdy, but no, no, no. But that's yeah. that's my issue with it as well. It's yeah. you know, he's just bashing his face into whatever the equivalent of the keyboard is. Yeah. Well, it's like and rearranging them in a way that is somehow still ordered. Equally, that could be a world-building thing. We've got Indo-European languages. We've also got these Strobergian, Brobdingnagian languages. Don't, <laughs> don't you dare. <laughs> okay. Whatever. Okay, tell, tell me about the Strollbrugs. Gladly. <laughs> <laughs> they are people who are immortal. You know about that? You don't die. They are identifiable when they're born because they have a spot on their forehead that grows and changes color as they age. So it, go, it goes from green to blue to black. And yeah. I'm like, see a dermatologist, yeah. please. <laughs> Gulliver's like, oh, that sounds great. They must be a treasury of knowledge and wisdom. I wish I was one. First thing I'd do if I live forever, I'd get very rich. <laughs> then I'd invent perpetual motion <laughs> and the universal medicine. Then I would use my wisdom and experience to steer history for the better. Why? He hasn't learned anything from his own experience so far. The Lugnagians are like, <laughs> you, what, is that what you think? <laughs> so, you, you're wrong. Because the Strollbrugs, yeah, they're immortal, but they keep aging. They go mad as they start to outlive their peers. And also they're miserable. They envy the young and the dead. If you're lucky and you're a Strollbrug, you just go completely senile and you just kind of spend the rest of your uh, all time as a sort of vegetable. If you're not lucky, you lose your hair, your teeth, and you can no longer speak to people because language naturally changes. So for this reason, after the age of 80, all Strollbrugs are considered socially dead and they lose all of their property and rights and things. The fear is that they might, you know, <laughs> they would just end up kind of owning all of the country otherwise. What, from the bottom of my heart, the fuck? This is, this section is such an enemy of the human spirit. I, this is why I don't <laughs> I like, like, I know, but it's, it's just, it's so pessimistic. I hate him. He's the he's the ugliest. He's a nasty outlook. guy. Yeah. So Gulliver then gets a ship to Japan. That's a real country. Then he takes a Dutch ship back to Europe. That's not a real continent. It's just a peninsula in Asia. So <laughs> that's something worth bearing in mind. He arrives back in England in 1710. You know, pretty refreshed. And yeah, so he's been away on this latest voyage for five and a half years. He has nothing to say about his reunion with his family, other than he found them in good health. <laughs> Mrs. Gulliver must be so glad to have you back. How could she ever thank him enough yeah. for returning? So, okay, part four. A voyage to the country of the Hunims. Winims, I think. Quin Quinims. Quinims. They're, they're H-O-U-Y-H-N-H-N-M-S. See, that, that is also quite an original, That's unlike Strollbrug and Brobdingnag and things. Quinim. Quinim. Quinum. Okay, well, ugh. So Gulliver is home for five whole months, and I hope his wife just glares silently at him <laughs> while she sips coffee, and he says he, quote, wishes he could have learned the lesson of knowing when I was well. Oh, Gulliver, you have failed yourself for nowhere near the last time, buddy. So he says he gets his wife pregnant again, and then f***s off on another voyage. However, he also says that she is big with child, but assuming that she got pregnant from his first night back, yes, after yes. only five months, 
that would make you maybe four and a half months pregnant. You would probably not be very big. Yeah. So she's been boinking another dude. Or, right. Yeah. I will eat my hat. Three cheers for Mrs. Gulliver. I hope your boyfriend's hot and freaks you nasty. So Gulliver gets another job as a captain. Who keeps hiring this guy? He is the Adam Sandler of Sir Francis Drake. <laughs> so he's captaining the ship and a bunch of his sailors die of a fever, so he stops off in Barbados and replaces them. But because Gulliver sucks at background checks, I mean, this guy runs a real tight shipwreck here, he doesn't realize that all of his new sailors are pirates. So the crew immediately mutinies and they tie up Gulliver and maroon him on an island. Now, my question to you is, even pirates don't mutiny for no reason? I think that's an interesting omission. He just says, and they mutinied. They put him in his best suit, though, don't they? Like, uh, he specifies that. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Dear diary, today I made 18 bad decisions, lost another ship, and forgot I had a wife for eight months straight. A personal best. So Gulliver has a little wander around this island. He sees a gaggle of strange-looking animals in a field. They're kind of they're bipeds, and they have sort of kind of weird patches of hair on their body. In particular, he talks about how they have really hairy buttholes. Yes, he is very preoccupied with the assholes of the male and female uh, of the species. There is no punchline. We are just stating the facts we know he's from this book. He's just such a kind of weird guy, though. Isn't <laughs> that sort of um, he's just completely disgusted by them, and he's like, "Well, oh, I better go off and you know find a you know a native of the island." The creatures pursue him. He tries to defend himself and hides under a tree. Uh, they all get in the tree and discharge their excrements on his head. However, the creatures all run away all of a sudden when they see a grey horse approach. The horse is like gives Gulliver a bit of a look around and is like, hmm, what's going on here then? And then another horse arrives and the two horses confer together, or at least appear to. Gulliver is like, wow, this is impressive. If the horses are here are clever, imagine what the humans are like. There's some dramatic irony. The horses they're quite interested in Gulliver's clothing and mannerisms and uh, he soon realises that they're speaking to one another in a kind of horsey language and they uh, periodically use the word Yahoo and Whinim and then soon the horse is like, the grey horse is like, come with me Gulliver, you know, in, in gesture form and so Gulliver follows it. So it turns out the Yahoos are the weird hairy butt people and the servants of the horse people so Gulliver follows the horses back to their village where a lot of the other horse people treat Gulliver with the most exquisite disdain. Gulliver and the horse people sort of sniff around each other for a while. They, they learn each other's cultures. We have loads more sociological, anthropological stuff here. Most of the horse people's society is sort of oat and milk based, which I think is lazy writing. I'm just going to say it. The horses are also really confused by Gulliver's similarities to the barbaric yahoos, but also he's really different from them too, so they can't quite figure out where Gulliver fits. And Gulliver learns the Huynum's language, which he says is similar to German. And he says everyone just can't believe he's not a yahoo because he's so smart and they <laughs> all view him as a prodigy. Shut the fuck up, Gulliver. Gulliver starts calling that grey horse his master. <laughs> Give me a little queer reading here, friends. Um, what? Because he, he kind of moves in with the grey horse and his family, right? Yeah. And in my morphine state, I just kept referring to him as the horse daddy. Okay, okay, right. And, I don't know, they kind of have a little tension. Go on, bitch, call each other by each other's names. You don't get that reference. What is that? Call me by your name. Oh, okay. That thing that you joined about in the first episode of yep. the series. 
bring it back. Yeah. It's called a callback, Daniel. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe I have I to teach yeah. you your craft. <laughs> it doesn't work if it's the first that I didn't get the first time. <laughs> well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but there, there's a queer reading there. Yeah. One of the other horses sees Gulliver naked one day and gets freaked out because he bears a lot of similarities to the Yahoos. And the, that horse reports that some parts of him were, quote, white, some yellow, and some brown. Is that Does that mean he has a tan, or is I, he unclean, or...? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Um, I just, it's a funny bit. Let's, let's just let that hang in the air. I thought... You can cut this, but I was wondering if it was just... pubes. Hmm. And they do, they, there's just a, a lot of fish out of water thing here where his master, the horse daddy, is like, you know, tell me of your country where my people are apparently slaves and yours are the leaders. Isn't that hilarious? And he really thinks Gulliver is joking when he learns that, you know, horses pull carriages and have to work. I like that, that it's like a reverse satire for the Winhams. They're like, what a crazy country, mm. you know. So Gulliver stays on the island for a few years and he comes to love it. He goes native and uh, sort of starts to think, I'm not really impressed by my own species. I admire the many virtues of those excellent quadrupeds. Gulliver explains humanity to the kind of Winnem master, and he's like, oh yeah, I suppose there are a few parallels between your lot and the Yahoos. They can't share, they are fractious, they're violently fond of certain shining stones that apparently have no use. And they, they get drunk, and uh, they're only the only animals on the island subject to disease and madness. You know, so maybe you know you lot and the Yahoos have a lot in common after all. Then Gulliver goes for to observe the Yahoos himself. They really hate him, uh, which is quite funny. But I think <laughs> the Winnem is kind of contemptuous to him, and the Yahoos hate him as a sort of turncoat. He's always escorted by a horse, though, to protect him. Then on one hot day, Gulliver strips off for a swim in a stream where a young female Yahoo sees him. Inflamed with desire, she tries to get with him. She embraced me after the most, after our most fulsome manner. And then the uh, soul mag uh, rescues him. Ooh, Gulliver's so, gonna go to the bone zone. Yes, exactly. The Quinims, they're entertained by this because it's sort of, uh, it's funny, obviously. And Gulliver is upset because it sort of confirms that he's a real Yahoo in every limb and feature. We get more a bit about the Quinims. You know, unlike the Yahoos, which are kind of weird, disgusting monsters, the Hwinims are naturally endowed with reason. They have no concept of opinions, dispute, or dubious propositions because they only trade uncertainties in a civil, practical manner. Hwinims do a lot of family planning. They're kind of eugenicists, aren't they? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. They value strength in the male and comeliness in the female, not upon the account of love, but to preserve the race from degenerating. Gulliver is happy to stay there forever. He's really taken to this the, the land of the Hwinnams. But the horse daddy comes in one day looking a little blue. And he says, look, people around town are starting to talk about how chummy I am with you. And I don't actually like you enough to withstand that, so get out. And he, Harry and the Hendersons, Gulliver, and Gulliver, you know, builds a boat and departs. So we get... The boat's sail is made of Yahoo skin. Come on, that's funny. Okay, all right. Well, good. I, I left it for you. Yeah, thank you. So he has more dumb adventures. I don't care at this point. And he finally makes it to a European ship that takes him home. The captain is really nice as well, isn't he? That's the big thing. Because Gulliver's like, I'm so disgusted by these yahoos. Yeah. And the captain's like patting him on the head and giving him nice things. And yeah. So, you know, maybe humans aren't all that bad. So he gets home and then says, quote, my wife and family received me with great surprise and joy. One of those two things, in any case. 
quote, because they concluded me certainly dead, <laughs> quote, but I must freely confess the sight of them filled me only with hatred, disgust, and contempt, and the more by reflecting on the alliance I had to them. So his wife hugs him, and he calls her an odious animal and faints out of sheer disgust. You know what? There, there are some places where God's light just can't touch, and Swift's novel is one of them. I hate him so much. So we cut to five years later when he's writing all of this, and he still finds his family disgusting, preferring only to talk to the horses in his stables. And I just imagine him screaming, you know, this is my emotional support horse, Mary. What are you going to do about it? I got a little yellow vest for it and everything. You can't do shit. Piss off and practice being more horse. <laughs> Get a bit of an afterword. He is like, ooh, could these places become part of the British Empire? <laughs> uh, Lila is like, don't bother, because it's tiny. Rob Dingnag, give it a miss, they're huge, <laughs> you know, they'll beat you. Laputa, the same, you know, they can squash you. The Huenems, they're a little kind of backward, aren't they? They're kind of noble savage types, but they are so noble that they, you know, in their noble savage capacity, that they could probably fight off the British with their, you know, left hoof tied behind their back. <laughs> so, you know, maybe don't colonise them at all. Also, Gulliver's like, Maybe imperialism isn't all that good anyway. Oh, oh, wait, the message. Uh, let's brace ourselves for the message. I hope it's real preachy. Why should the accidental country, uh, discovery of a new country by a bunch of depraved sailors who rob, plunder, murder, and kidnap its harmless natives constitute ownership over this land? All right, the British convert people to Christianity uh, and introduce British justice, but, you know, some people don't have any desire to be conquered, enslaved, murdered, or driven <laughs> out. So, you know, maybe empire's not all that. And in the end, he's just like, well, I am kind of acclimatizing to my wife and the rest of the Yahoos, but I'm still unimpressed. The end. I would have more to say, but my speech has just devolved to inarticulate hissing. Or a neighing, maybe. The end. Okay. Shall we cast this? Please. Because I'm annoyed to say I actually had a really great idea for this. Oh, I'm sorry. This is a travel narrative, and it's got a very strange blend of fact and fiction, of satire and dryness, sort of majesty and ugliness, right? So it's got a really ugly outlook. I want Werner Herzog to do a fictionalized yeah, documentary yeah. with him as a sort of pseudo-largely-unseen Gulliver, that unreliable narrator. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. You smashed it. Well done. So, the book, it's a satire. What's being satirized? We've kind of already discussed that, haven't we? You know, is Gulliver a patient observer? Is he a gullible idiot? Are the Yahoo's depraved? But, okay, yeah, they are. The Winnims, they're also, like, Nazis, aren't they? You know, what side are we supposed to come down on in this book? But I think it's just, it's such a misanthropic book. I think he wants everyone... To come up badly. To, yeah. To, yes, yes, so, and I know that that's kind of the point. Hmm. It's something that I couldn't connect with. That's the thing, is that the satire is so broad, it's, it's, it's scattershot. Everyone's taken some shrapnel here. I like but, that about it, But though. in doing so, nobody's really taking shrapnel, so it's almost defanging itself. I don't know whether I... I know what you mean, but I don't know whether I fully... That, I mean, that kind of makes sense why it became a children's book, doesn't it? Uh, you know, the way everyone in the 19th and early 20th century thought it was a kid's book. I, I, the misanthropy, I don't mind. In fact, I encourage it. The misogyny, what do you think about that? Because that is a bit... I nasty. found this so strange. It, I really... I know everything is a queer reading for me, this really read like a closeted dude. Yeah, it, maybe. His, his hatred of women, his contempt, and 
disgust at any sort of even attempt at sexuality or apart from his weird child nurse which mm. felt really dodgy I don't I I found his treatment of women so bizarre it's, it's only the men he connected with in ways that bordered on sexual for me well like who like the emperor the horse daddy and and the emperor the horse is a horse of course of course <laughs> more than he is a man though but he's a male. So there, it's more well, like, male. I think there's more just a sort of paraphilic vibe. Okay, fine. But there's a. There, he, he's not connecting with a horse mommy. That's true. In the Ted Danson one, he does. If that's any consolation. Ted Danson fks a horse. <laughs> no, he just calls how the horse mistress. How long would that horse's face be if they had a kid? <laughs> that's funny. Also, just. I think part of the other. One of the other problems with the satire, maybe, is there's just like so many in jokes, aren't there? I mean. It stands on its own feet, but also when you kind of read the footnotes, it's like, this is about the wigs. Romana Clay mm. dates very quickly, doesn't it? Yes. That's the problem with the Lilliput section in particular. I think the Brobdingnag and the Wynnum sections, have they stand on their own feet more. I mean, I'm not not familiar with that period in history, and I had a really hard time connecting it. I, I would not have made any of these connections yeah. without footnotes, and even then I'm like, that seems a bit tenuous. But then that's kind of a strength, isn't it, as well, that it has that well, degree of autonomy. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's the one thing, is that it's, its connections are so dated that we just have to take it almost on its own terms. I read a really weird paper that was saying that, I and mean, it was interesting, but it was saying that the description of Laputa is a description of something that looks like a button because it's like flat and round and has four holes in the middle. Lakes, the four yeah, lakes. Yeah, the lakes. And that there was some kind of co coffee shop called Buttons where loads of scientists would hang out and also wigs. And because Swift was a Tory and hated science, that's what's going on there. And I was like, that, see, that's so convoluted. I mean, Laputa's a cool idea in itself, but when you hear like there's that sort of depth, it's more like a sort of... The whole book reads more like a sort of problem to be solved than a kind of aesthetic artifact in its own right. Mm. But, you yeah, know, whatever. It, it feels like a, a solution in search of a problem, to be honest, <laughs> yeah. a lot of it. But, I mean, I was thinking about this in terms of travel writing. All travel writing, I think, is really about the place you've come from. Mm. It's a way of, you know, if, if you were to travel, anything you produced would ultimately really be about England. Yeah, and defamiliarizing it. Yes. Yeah. Whenever he goes there, he just ends up discussing England so much with whoever he mm. talks about. I, I don't know, I found this um, really strange that he hates being in England, and yet all he can do when he's there is talk about England, and, and travel writing itself is about where you're I from. I suppose it's worth bearing in mind that Swift is Irish, so yeah. England is another of those kind of mad, depraved, satirical no, countries. But, uh, and I, I, I get that that's as a sort of tension between the author and the narrator, which mm. I really like, but I was just thinking as well, like, you go so far away and you always keep coming back, yeah. but you can't stay. And just the chronic dissatisfaction wherever you are, he's talking about England even when he's away. When he's in England, he's writing about other places or wanting yeah, to yeah, leave. Yeah. And it's just, like, that's why I just... there. It's a character who doesn't... I mean, I suppose he does have an arc in that he does technically change, but overarchingly, he never changes. He changes in that he's constantly being influenced by wherever he is, but he's always chronically dissatisfied. Yeah, yeah. And so you have a static character, and I find him very hard to latch onto. That's the other thing, that you could have gone far more weird on this in some respects, that, like, all the countries except maybe the winning one, which is quite primitive, but also, like, noble savage. All the other countries are very, like, they're just, like, an 18th century... 
difficult. Yeah. You kind of like. Yeah. This is a critique that we get a lot today in terms of fantasy writing, where I'm like, you've just reproduced the exact same world, but with magic. Yes. Like yeah, magic yeah, 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 wouldn't yeah. fundamentally change exactly. the structure of yeah. the world. So, yeah, I can see that this is. I mean, it, to me, it is slightly lazy writing. But he, in fairness to Swift, he's caught between a rock and a hard place when you're trying to satirize the real world. Yeah. But then, how do you? That's, reproduce it. Yeah, that's part of the appeal of the book, I think. Unlike fantasy, where it's purely like escapism, this at least is a kind of a mirror or yeah. whatever. And right. Are we done with this turkey? It's well and truly based in. Yeah, okay. Here is some advice. Um, I really struggled to read this book, even though I was sort of a captive audience. As I said, I was in the hospital while I was reading this. I had nothing else to do. And this book actually isn't even that hard to read. But what do you do when you have a book, you have to read it, and you just cannot get through it for the life of you? What I did was break it up into smaller, more manageable chunks. So I actually read this by watching 10 minutes of a TV show, pausing that, and then reading one chapter, because the chapters here aren't very long at all. And so then I would end every episode of this TV show having also read six chapters of a book. and that you know, helped make it feel a lot less overwhelming and less of a chore if there's an immediate reward for sort of minimal effort. That sounds like some kind of, you know, Gulliver would visit some place where people read a page of a book and then get a little pellet of Look, sweets. Look, whatever works. I mean, I don't normally do that. that no, no. I, I, didn't I do normally do that. I'm a terrible reader. So the clue to our next episode, it's our Valentine's Day special. And the text we've chosen it's a, it's a largely considered a great romance of classic literature, and it also contains this, to my mind, I don't know about you, the thirstiest skank in all of literature, who is a woman named Blanche. I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. It's not that <laughs> one. Okay, I thought it was that, so that's me in the soup. Thank you. <laughs> We're recording two different plots over <laughs> next time. So please write into our email if you have any suggestions or comments. We would love to read your, uh, your message on our show. Or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. And please subscribe wherever you listen. And please rate and review us as well. That's really important and it'll take just a second of your time. Yes, Daniel. It's, it's very important. It is, actually, because it helps no, yeah, people I'm not find... I'm not being sarcastic. People need, to, people need to hear our voice. Uh, it just it helps people find us, and it helps keep us going. I want to share going. good works. Are you an Italian widow? What's yeah, happening? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. All right, thank you guys for listening, and I hope you're, <laughs> you got your loins girded for season two. It's going to be a wild ride. And just a happy new year, dummies. Bye! Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not... I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.